Hey everyone, my name is Will Malice, and I'm an assistant news editor for the Massachusetts Daily Collegian, the only student-run print and online newspaper here on the UMass campus, serving the community since 1890. And this is the official podcast for the news section of the Collegian, called the Collegian News Hour. We're recording today's episode on Monday, February 17th, but this, like every installment of our podcast, will be released at 8 o'clock every Tuesday morning on SoundCloud and Apple Podcasts. So here in the studio with me to recap the stories we have covered over the past week are the rest of the news team, if you want to introduce yourselves. I'm Catherine Eston, Assistant News Editor. I'm Abby Sharpentier, the News Editor. I'm Cassie McGrath, Assistant News Editor. Cool. So for our first story this week, um, we had a conclusion to all the impeachment proceedings. So uh, Catherine, do you want to talk about that? Sure. So after about... Uh, Just over 100 days, I think it came to 106 days total, uh, between a petition being submitted calling for the impeachment of Timmy Sullivan and the hearing decision being released. Uh, He will not be recalled from office. I think it was uh, eight charges, or not eight charges, but eight allegations that the judiciary dealt with. Uh, And a big thing is, you know, what is the judiciary's role? This was the first case of its kind, uh, and they decided it was a two-step process. First, for their step of inquiry, they had to make sure that the impeachment process was uh, conducted constitutionally and the impeachment was valid and they decided the senate had followed all the rules they interpreted the bylaws as necessary uh, and the impeachment was valid Uh, the second was looking at the underlying causes of all of those uh, charges and seeing whether they harmed students directly Uh, it was harmed students or harmed how the sga operates in the 14-page decision, uh, I think it was authored by Justice Jeremy Broom, and he talked about, you know, here's why we chose not to recall him from office for each reason. And there were a few points where they said mistakes were made by both sides, or there were misunderstandings. Uh, you know, one big one is the Senate did not include the original articles of impeachment in their petition. So what that means is when you want a case to be heard by the judiciary, you're supposed to write out a petition explain, you know, this is why the case needs to be heard according to the bylaws. And the judiciary decided that the Senate should have just submitted the articles of impeachment instead of writing something new that wasn't approved by the Senate in a total vote. And it seems it could have almost been a mistrial from the start of, you know, since those articles weren't in there, uh, was the petition valid? And that was kind of something that was questionable. Uh, But they decided, you know, since this was the first case of its kind, they would not rule against the Senate due to that uh, mistake. Um, but they did ultimately decide not to recall Timmy Sullivan. Yeah, I think that's interesting how this case is kind of establishing a precedent that's you know going to be used. Hopefully this doesn't happen again, but if it were to happen again, that they would have some type of protocol for it. Yeah, I think afterwards the judiciary was definitely talking about that. This is a precedent-setting case. It's something for students to refer to in the future. And as an alumni, I think it would be fascinating to see this happen again. I hope it doesn't. <laughs> like, to make that very clear, I do not hope this happens again. But, uh, you know, if the collegians reporting on another one of these, I think it would be great. Uh, this also sets a precedent for us of how we want to report on this in the future, uh, how we want to cover this. And I'm glad it set a precedent for, the, precedent for the SGA on how they would deal with it within their systems. So, um, also, so the judiciary, they determined that the... Um, misallocation of funds that that wasn't harmful to students and to like the proceedings of the SGA. So a big part of it was also whether bylaws addressed payroll. So in order to be removed from office, he had to break a bylaw and it had to harm students. Um, but as witness testimony proved during the hearing, payroll is not something that's addressed by the SGA bylaws. How hours are allocated, who they're allocated to, and who makes those decisions isn't necessarily clear. And I think a big takeaway there is 
payroll form is going to happen in the SJ at some point, and this case probably pushed it to the top of the to-do list. So it, they kind of decided, you know, he didn't break a bylaw in that case because the bylaw doesn't exist. Um, yeah, so I think it's really interesting to look at the logistics behind this case, but I know that a lot of the student reaction right now is still there is money that, like a lot of money being allocated to one person in the SGA. I just think it's really interesting to look at the amount of time the students put into making sure that everything was done technically correct, but I'm interested in how the effect on the student body will be if they really, if people necessarily care about whether or not they um, they had a bylaw or not, and or if they're just mad that a student took that much money for and paid himself it, especially since a lot of RSOs are not being funded, and I think there might not even be an exact correlation there. There might be also, but just it's interesting to kind of follow the reaction of the student body um, because even if the SJ is doing everything that they think is correct in the bylaws that they have, at the end of the day, someone paid themselves a lot of money. So, um, I mean, making sure that doesn't happen again in the future is important. But I wonder if he was recalled, would he have been required to pay that money back? Um, because I really think it is comes down to a matter of he has all of this extra money that maybe could have gone to something else, you know? Yeah, I think looking forward, uh, another big discussion that came out of this was what's the culture of the SGA? Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, what is the point of having a student government on campus? And I'm definitely oversimplifying it in saying this, but if there are two sides, there's the one saying, you know, this is an organization that has control of funds. These funds are supposed to go to student groups, uh, and that's how they're being controlled. Uh, and the other side, which uh, President Sullivan, eh, he summarized it in his testimony talking about, you know, nobody's questioning why extra hours were allocated to the financial committees, but why isn't the work on food justice campaigns and different campaigns like that that his administration has really focused on over the past two years? Uh, why isn't that work considered worthwhile spending money on? Mm-hmm. So I don't have an answer to that, but I think that's a discussion that's continuing to be held between members of the SJ of, you know, should this money be going to SJ initiatives to change the campus or should it be going to these student groups primarily? Yeah, I also think um, we kind of talked about this last week, but um, the lasting effect that this will have on the bylaws, um, because now they're probably really reevaluating them and being held more accountable um, for their bylaws than ever because people actually know that the SGA has bylaws, which is something that the majority of this campus probably doesn't know. But I think that more awareness is being raised, and I think that'll just help the SGA in the future. One thing I'm just thinking about now is the people who are on the SGA who maybe weren't in the judiciary or were in the Senate but weren't necessarily as concerned with impeachment as other people, how they will go into the SGA next year. Because I've heard a lot about the culture of the SGA in the past being really good and people working together and maybe getting more work done because they're working together. So how will the SGA bounce back from this? Will they kind of be like, okay, let's put this in the past? Or there will be people that are really always going to have trouble working with one another because of this for maybe the next two or three years in the future. I mean, I hope that people can kind of put this behind them and really try to even get more work done and be like, okay, now that we're under this spotlight, now this is our opportunity to show people that we really do matter and we can make a difference on the campus. Do you think this issue is exclusive to Timmy Sullivan and his administration, or do you think this is something that kind of will continue after he graduates and we have 
different presidents and so on? My understanding is it's going to depend a lot on who those candidates are in the next election, likely what role they've played over the past few months. You know, we don't have any candidates announced yet. We don't know when the spring elections are happening. Uh, we should expect that news the next few weeks. So I'm sure you guys will all hear it on the podcast. But if it's somebody who is very closely involved in this, I wouldn't be shocked to see that during the election, people bringing it up saying, you know, you voted this way and here's why I think you voted this way and people arguing over those kind of details. And I'd hope that it doesn't hang over the SGA over the next few years and that they can move past this. But at least in my time at UMass, there's always been tensions in the SGA between different members, different committees, between the president and the Senate or members of the cabinet and the Senate. And I don't think the culture is going to change overnight. And that's something that's going to take a few years and it could go either way, just like Cassie said. Cool. Uh, So for our next story, um, this was a story that was written by um, uh, Sophia Gardner, who um, who's also an assistant news editor, but wasn't able to make it to the podcast today. She wrote an article on um, the Amherst Fire Department had released a graph titled Drunk UMass Kids Are Not the Problem on January 27th. And the graph indicated what calls AFD will generally respond to. It said that 3% of the calls were related to substance abuse emergencies at UMass, 15% of other emergencies at UMass, and then the rest was 82% consisted of all of the emergencies that happened outside of UMass. And UMass students make up 40% of the population protected by uh, the Amherst Fire Department, but UMass students only account for 18% of uh, AFD's emergency traffic. And AFD also responds to more calls from intoxicated college students than most fire departments. And there's also been collaboration between APD, UMPD, and AFD that they have felt has led to a decrease in calls about intoxicated students. And then um, Tom Val, uh, the AFD social media administrator, said that uh, UMass students are used as a scapegoat uh, in lieu of fixing staffing problems in AFD. And it was also uh, interesting in the article to note that AFD covers all of Amherst, which includes Amherst itself, UMass, Amherst College, and then um, Hampshire College, too. It was great to see the coverage. I think Sophie did a great job. And doing police logs, and I'm sure you guys come across this with the UMass police logs, too. I think there's definitely a stereotype that most of the work is being done for students in the town, and that that's something that they have to respond to constantly. But based on releases from the university and from all these departments over the years, uh, students are actually a declining issue in the town. I do hope the fire department gets its funding and that they're able to continue to work for everyone in the town of Amherst, not just everyone focusing on drunk UMass kids. I mean, yeah, I would hope that the students of UMass are not causing like that. I mean, if I feel like if they were causing the level of problems that they are stereotyped as, the university wouldn't be able to exist it's just not realistic at this point that the students are causing that much trouble on campus. And I think that hearing it from the Amherst Fire Department really just like cl- clears up any confusion about what is really needed by them. And I'm glad that they've been given the platform to speak out and hopefully there's change like Catherine said. Yeah, I think um, part of that is like, I think UMass has at least historically had a reputation of being a partying school. And, you know, and there's... When the Patriots go to the Super Bowl or the Red Sox win the World Series, there's riots and and a lot of that stuff gets media coverage. But those are one day out of a whole uh, academic year. So UMass gets like a certain reputation because of that. What I think also is interesting is kind of that last point about 
how AFD covers the whole town, but for APD, they cover Amherst, and they help out with the school police departments, but UMass has its own police department. Amherst College, I believe, has its own police department, and I'm not sure if Hampshire does. I know they have some type of security. Um, I don't know if they have, like, an official police department, but um, so, like, APD doesn't have to cover as much for, like, the whole, all of the schools or all of Amherst where AFD does, um, and I think that's kind of an interesting perspective in looking at um, some staffing issues. All right, cool. So uh, for our next story, it's an article that I'm writing about Smith College. Um, it's about two students who are being evaluated for, coron- for concerns of coronavirus, uh, and both have been cleared and have been released from isolation. The first student was placed in voluntary isolation on February 2nd after returning from China. The student believed that she had returned home on the same flight as a student from UMass Boston who was diagnosed, um, and she was feeling cold-like symptom- symptoms. Uh, she was released 24 hours after, after quote, being uh, asymptomatic. And the second student uh, had returned from the Hubei province in China, which is uh, the site of the outbreak. She had initially called the Massachusetts Department of Health, um, Department of Public Health, if she should be self-quarantined, and they didn't, she didn't meet that criteria for isolation, but she later reported cold-like symptoms, and she was brought to an emergency room for evaluation. But as of February 10th, uh, an update to her condition said that she was medically cleared and um, taken out of isolation, and right now there's no risk to the Smith community. Yeah, exciting. We're glad not to have coronavirus uh, in Western Mass. And I'm glad that the school took the actions to keep the community informed and make sure everyone was aware of who they should call uh, if they thought they might have symptoms. Oh, yeah. Coronavirus, I mean, of course, has been the top news story basically for the past two weeks. I just got a notification on my phone like while we were recording that Apple said it won't meet its quarterly revenue goals because of coronavirus's impact on the production and demand, and that's from the Washington Post. And it's just really, like, on the front of everyone's minds. And it's we had a rumor going around that coronavirus was on campus. And so I think that it's really, I mean, it's scaring a lot of people. And it's great that they're putting all the information that they have out there so that we know that we are safe. And hopefully that, that this gets under control and people stay safe throughout the world. So uh, for our last uh, news story for the week, um, this was written by... Uh, McKenna Primus. Um, This is about the sustainability slammer that happened uh, last Wednesday. (coughs) So the sustainability slammer is a event on campus where some of the on-campus sustainability and environmental groups table at the campus center uh, and it allows students to kind of learn about different groups such as sustainable UMass, the Sunrise Movement at UMass, and Massburg. Um, Those are just a few of the many organizations that are there. Uh, and this was put on by Andrea Papa, the Secretary of Sustainability in the SGA. And then, so just an overview of some of the organizations. Sustainable UMass was there, and they helped organize the event as a whole, and they also helped coordinate New to You, which collects unwanted items during spring move-out and then resells them during the move-in in fall. Uh, then there's Massburg, which has um, their Save the Bees program. That is, uh, they're petitioning in support of the Act to Protect Massachusetts Pollinators, and is pushing for UMass to become, quote, bee-friendly. And then another group was EcoRep, and they lead their own student-taught two-credit course. And this is um, 
has a curriculum that's created by a faculty advisor and a student program manager and then taught by actual students. So yeah, I think, um, I think it's really cool that UMass has these events that kind of allows students to learn about what's being done and I think also how they can kind of get involved and have an impact on the environment. Yeah, this is another national or international um, issue and I think it's really cool when we have coverage of how UMass interacts with these international issues like coronavirus and climate change and how students are really passionate about making a difference and it would be great if we could really see some some serious change soon when it comes to climate policy but I think this is a good step in raising awareness about climate change and it's great that there are so many student organizations involved in um, raising awareness and taking action on climate change. So uh, that was our last news story that we covered um, but uh, we have um, another archive to do for our weekly segment. Um, this one is from the February 19th, 1918 edition of the Collegian. At this point, it was the Massachusetts Collegian for UMass, which was at the time the Massachusetts Agricultural College. First thing I noticed is there's a lot of, um, like a big focus on the front page is, is sports. There's an article about the basketball team and the hockey team. Um, the special sale at the college store, 29 cents. I mean, that's just funny to me. <laughs> I feel like it's implied why it's funny. Uh, there were definitely quite a few articles uh, referencing the First World War without really explicitly saying anything about it. You know, there's a war, uh, an advertisement for war bonds that quotes a London newspaper uh, saying how, you know, the only thing keeping the Germans out of London is the Allies and we need to stay strong. That's why you need to buy war bonds. Uh, there was also a call for people to enlist in the air service. Uh, which is apparently a predecessor to the current uh, Air Force, because the Air Force isn't founded until the 1940s. And I'm just imagining what it would have been like to read this, because the first airplane was invented, what, a decade? 15 years maybe before this article was written? <laughs> kind of saying, you know, oh, you know, 25% of students are already dropping out of school to come join the military, or graduating early to come join. Why don't you come join and fly something that was just invented? Full-time is your job. Uh, so when they say, you know, they're looking for people that have brains, courage, and physique, I think you definitely need a lot of courage uh, to go join the air service because I would personally find that extremely intimidating. <laughs> Something else that's interesting is people used to have to pay for the paper. So a subscription for one year was $2 and single copies were $0.08. Cents. So I'm just wondering when we like stopped making people pay for our articles and for our newspaper. I think that's really interesting. Yeah, to that point, I wonder how... like hard it was to make the paper back then like like now we have computers and stuff where it's easier to publish and stuff so I wonder if it was you know hard to make so they had to sell it to make money and stuff and I noticed the ad on the last page which advertises the top three things you can get at uh, the drugstore in Amherst which are cigars cigarette and then candies the the most important things to get from your drugstore yeah (laughs) oh and then the last one is uh MAC banners so the equivalent of that today would be cigars, cigarettes, candies, and UMass banners. <laughs> so, sorry, top four things you can get at your local drugstore. Um, we talked about this a bit before the podcast, but how the paper is male, very male-dominated and just how life was is some, somehow still shocking to me. 
I mean, obviously, this is over 100 years ago, but it's so interesting to me to see, like, how much we have evolved as a paper. So it's just really cool. And the paper's also very small back then. <laughs> of course, we don't have bylines on the article, so we don't know. Maybe there were writers who weren't on staff. But to see that the business department is four people and there's five editors. So it's almost a 50-50 split between those two. Uh, and today, staffing at the Collegian is definitely not a 50-50 split between mm-hmm. business and writing. And I think part of that would be we have separate departments now for each of the sections. Whereas back then, I'm assuming somebody who wrote a sports article might write a news article the same day. Okay, so I just looked it up because I was curious. But in 19... I'm sorry. In 1875, um, there was the first woman to enroll at Mass Aggie. But she joined, as a, joined the college as a select class, which is a non-degree student. And then in 1903, uh, Lily Burdett Allen became the first woman to graduate from Mass Aggie. And then in 1920, the Abigail Adams House was the first woman dorm built. So at this time, there probably weren't, I mean, there were probably such a small number of women on campus to participate in the newspaper. It was probably just not heard of. Of course, I'm kind of speculating. But yeah, going back to my last point, interesting looking at how the date compares this is before there was even a dorm for a woman built on campus. Okay, so uh, I think that's all the time we have for now. It was great having everyone listen. Tune in next time, and once again, I'm Will Malice. I'm Catherine Eston. I'm Abby Charpentier. And I'm Cassie McGrath. And you've been listening to the Collegian News Hour. The music for this podcast was created by Joaquin Crude and promoted by Audio Library. Make sure to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts and give us a rating if you enjoyed today's episode. It really helps us out. So thanks for listening, and we'll be back next week.